Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So welcome everyone to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. Today, billionaire investor and founder of the well-known VC firm, DFJ, Tim Draper, joins the show to discuss his journey delving into VC and investing in some of the largest companies in the world. First off, Tim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today, and thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. And um, and I started DFJ, and I founded it, and I'm very proud of it and what it's done, but I spun out about 10 years ago to run Draper Associates, and, and so that I had a little more autonomy in what I did. Gotcha. And uh, let's first start off with your background. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. So back in 1958, when your dad, Bill Draper, entered the VC space, how did you get interested in VC? And then what was that experience like growing up? I did always have to explain what my father did because venture capital was such an odd thing. Nobody did it. And over time, I, I figured out just by saying he invests in small companies and hopes they get bigger. That used to explain what we do. I don't think it's changed too much since then, but it was great growing up in a family with venture capital because my dad clearly was having a great time doing what he was doing. He was, we were sort of struggling for quite a few years, but then he got a couple of big hits and that worked out very well. And when I started out in business school, I really didn't want to be a venture capitalist. I wanted to be an entrepreneur because dad had always highlighted the entrepreneur, never the venture capitalist, and as it should be. And then I realized that I didn't have the complete dedication that it takes to be an entrepreneur. I had four ideas coming out of business school. All of them were decent, but I didn't, I wasn't willing to dedicate my life to any of them. And so venture capital turned out to be a better fit for me. And we built the, I started the business and then I started with an SBIC. I borrowed about $6 million from the SBA. And after three years, it looked like they were going to call my loan. Like I was going to lose everything. I flew back to Washington to convince them to hold hold on. Everything was fine. It's going to work out. And it did. I wasn't sure it was going to, but I had good confidence that it would. And we were able to pay back the SBA and make a good fortune when the IPO window opened up. We had about five IPOs and all of a sudden we were on top of the world and we were the we went from the 
the SBIC dirt list to the, my picture being on their wall as venture capitalist of the year. So that was a, a real fun journey. And then I brought in John Fisher and Steve Jurvetson. We built up DFJ so much so that it would be careful what you wish for. We had 12 <laughs> partners. And, and at, at one point, I realized I wasn't really able to get the best deal. I, I had most of the deal flow and the partnership, but I wasn't able to get those deals funded. And I realized that we were, we were not doing the best we could for our investors, for our limited partners. And I was rich enough by that time that I could start investing my own money. And I did. And then I, and I, I did very well. I, I funded Robinhood at an $11 million valuation. Now it's worth about, what, $10 billion? I funded Coinbase pretty early. I funded Cruise Automation, and we had, we, it was a $12 million valuation, and it was sold for a billion dollars to GM. And then I bought all that Bitcoin, and I'm, I was fortunate to be out of the partnership at that time because the partnership probably would not have allowed it. The, the deal with the limited partners would have had to be, have been renegotiated. And so I bought all that Bitcoin and that ended up being a big success too. So, and then Twitch, we back, I backed Twitch and a number of other big winners. I was doing it just on my own and I kind of felt like it would be more fun to have limited partners investors who got to invest alongside me. And so I did. I, I raised some money and, and allowed them to invest alongside me. And we've had three funds like that. So it's it's been a great, wild, wonderful career with a lot of fits and starts in it. For sure. And a while back, you've done a lot of early stage investing by investing in companies like Tesla, Hotmail, and Skype, but also late stage investing as well. What is the difference in the thinking from a VC standpoint on how you analyze deal flow from the early stage standpoint compared to the late stage? It's a really good question because it is different. At the early stage, I am very focused on what if this works, how great will it be? And will that be a good thing for the world? And I, which is weird because most venture capitalists just look at all the things that could go wrong and they say, oh, we can't invest in too many things that could go wrong. Well, a lot can go wrong. It's like two girls and a dog and they're trying to get something going. And that is tough because they're going up against, you know, Google with 100,000 employees or something. And that's a difficult thing. Being an entrepreneur is difficult. And you're starting to see that come very true with a bear market. So at the early stage, it's really, what if it works? And are these people dedicated enough, qualified enough, driven enough, intelligent enough to make it work? And then at the later stages, you already know that it's working. You already know that they're customers. It's much more a how fast can it grow and how big is the market and, and is management capable of managing a much larger organization than they are managing now. So those are the things that I look for in late stage. It's very different business. But 
to me, late stage is easy. And it's, it's kind of more fun for me to do the hard thing is the early stage business and, and to generate our own deal flow. And we created Draper University and meet the Drapers and my Twitter account spreads a lot of good word at Tim Draper. It spreads a lot of good, good ideas and thoughts around the world. And so we generate and actually even manufacture deal flow. And that's very different from most venture capitalists, but it's also the, it's the hardest thing in the business and it's the most fun. For sure. And speaking of Hotmail, it was started by Sabir Bahita and Jack Smith, and they had the goal to provide email to everyone over the internet for free. And we talk a lot on the podcast on viral growth and distribution. And when people like products, they generally talk about it. We were talking about this with Mark Cuban the other day. And when Hotmail started, they planned to put billboards on the highway and try to get a small amount of TV ads with the money that they raised. So instead, you came up with the idea of the message, PS, I love you, get your free email at Hotmail, which is genius because it's a method that Apple and Outlook even employ today when sending from mobile devices. For example, uh, it will say, get Outlook for iOS or sent from my iPhone. And through this strategy, they were able to accumulate 11 million users in just 18 months. So how did you come up with viral marketing? And then what are some of the ways startups could take advantage of it today without dumping millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars in advertising? Well, it came to me in a couple of, for a couple of reasons. One was that we were stuck because we were thinking we don't have enough money to support this company in putting up billboards and TV ads and whatever to get people to use this. And and I I kept saying, well, can't you just blast it out to everybody out there in the in the internet? And they said, no, that would be spamming. And then I thought, well, wait, you're giving away free email to people. Isn't there something we can do to stick a little something in there, you know, that says, I said, P.S., I love you, get your free email at Hotmail. They said, they after about a week of me just pounding the table, they finally said, okay, we'll try it, but no P.S., I love you, just get your free email at Hotmail. Would have been a much more peaceful and loving world if we had done that. But the the reason I came up with it, I guess the the fundamental reason was that I remember from business school a Tupperware case where no one could buy Tupperware without creating a Tupperware party, which would they'd get Tupperware and then they'd sell it to all their friends and then their friends would get it and they'd sell it to all their friends. And I thought, wow, that was I always thought that was sort of a genius plan that that the customer becomes the sales force, very saves a lot in marketing, that sort of thing. So that was one of the things. And then I play a lot of chess and it was sort of the same part of my brain that said, well, wait, if I send you an email, then you send emails to all your friends and they send it to all their friends. They send it to all their friends. Pretty much you cover the entire world with email. And that was where I said, and they thought I was awful because I kept just that was I would not let it go. And they finally went ahead and did it. And I think we're all happy that they did. 
And you were named as the number one networked venture capitalist by Always On Magazine, where they used, you mentioned in your book, The Startup Here, where they used a model and your name would come up the most often. Now, over here at Ambit, I like to network it with as many individuals as possible and I provide that value to them through the podcast. But how did you start building out your network and how can early VCs do the same? <laughs> I like your questions. I also <laughs> like that you read my book. You know, I, and, and so I'll, I'll tell you about this. I noticed that in high school, people were in cliques, that little cliques. They, they would stick with just the certain group, the jocks, the nerds, the, the freaks, the whatever. And they'd stick to themselves and they'd, they would be just one type of person and they'd just stick to themselves. And I liked everybody. And so I would go from one to the next, the next, the next, sometimes being accepted and sometimes not. But I liked that. I liked the feeling of um, connecting. And I realized that I was able to learn different things from different groups. And I could bring the value of those things to whatever my group was at the time. And, and so in building out a network, I. I always thought in terms of, hey, if I connect to that clique, if there's some leveraged way I can connect to that clique, that will help me. I connect to that clique and that'll help me. And that, that's kind of the way cor the corporate world is. If you connect to each, in our case, it would be the CEO of each of those companies, but you, know, you could connect to the VP of, HR or the CIO or the whatever of each company and so that you have an in to each company and then then the word can start to spread and then this is a kind of a strange little fact I was the first venture capitalist to ever advertise and it was because I I invested in Upside magazine and they they had empty space in their magazine <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, I'll put an ad in there. And, and I think that that was, that was kind of a new breakthrough. And then I have a relatively thick skin. So I was willing to talk to the press. And for a while, the press was, uh, was nice. And then they, they, when things are starting to go well, they, they like to take a few shots. And so I had to build up a little bit of a thick skin and then it turns out there is a good way of working with the press where as long as you don't mind what the headline says, uh, as long as you make sure that you are in that last paragraph with the other point of view. I mean, headline would be great, but it's probably better to uh, more likely that you're going to get that last paragraph that says other people disagree with my statement and here they are and working that way, the press liked it because I was always willing to have a response. And I think that that helped. And the other thing was I was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist to go international. And we, you know, I went to China. I was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist to go to China. I went to Eastern Europe. In China, I found Baidu. I actually found Alibaba too, but I didn't back him. A big mistake. And then uh, uh, yeah, I did Skype in Eastern Europe. And 
it gave me a window into other places. And when I'd set up, then I set up the Draper Venture Network, which is now a network of 24 relationships in 60 different cities around the world. And that, that network would be more local to the entrepreneurs in that city or that region. And that, so I, I had, I had leveraged, I had a leveraged network. And I guess that was sort of how I thought it through. Yeah. And speaking of branching out besides just your network or topics of interest, I was on a college tour the other day and the tour guide was actually studying medicine. I really wanted to connect with this tour guide, though I have no experience or interest in medicine. So I was trying to think of a bunch of different ways. So I just started asking questions and it turns out he actually took part in working with the engineering team over at the university in building a piece of technology, a health tech technology to use in one of the hospitals nearby. And I'm like, hey, this connects perfectly with what I do, applying engineering and technology concepts into the real world and just talking to them about it. So I was able to connect. And then I realized there are way more people outside of my individual scope that I can connect with and that I can share my values and important things as well, besides just the areas that I'm interested in. That is great. I always told my kids to whenever you're on an airplane, turn to the person to your left, find out what, ask what they do, and then turn to your person on your right and ask what they do. And suddenly you'll start to get a picture of the world that is much broader, more worldly, and you'll start to really understand the economic system of the world because you'll say, oh, yeah, there was that person who was the, who provided support to the, insurance company that did this or whatever. And you start putting pieces together and you do realize that all 8 billion of us are interconnected. And uh, this tie probably touched a thousand hands in some way or another, or a thousand people came together to make this tie. And, you know, the iPhone, it's probably a billion people that somehow had a hand in how the iPhone looks today. We are all interconnected through this amazing system of a free market. And that's why I, whenever a, a leader of a country starts talking about socialism or communism or Marxism, I, I go after them like a, like a barracuda because I just say, you are doing it wrong. You are making a huge mistake. You are cutting your own people from the from access to this free market that is so important to society and to everyone around us and you're you're in effect dooming your country to whatever it is 30 or 40 years where their economy will lag and they will lag the rest of the world and i feel that way right now about china i feel it about russia I feel like those the people in those two countries are are stuck in a plane that's crashing and they can't get out of it. Meanwhile, you know, you're seeing very clever countries like El Salvador or Uruguay or Switzerland now making Bitcoin national currency, changing the whole nature of their economies. They are looking forward to the next 40 years. They're not looking backward at the last 40 years. And they're not trying to control everybody. They're trying to set them free. 
there is a big difference between government control and freedom. And if a country, if a leader is talking about government telling everybody what to do, run as far as and fast away from that leader as you can. If some leader is talking about how they're going to set you free, you're going to be able to do what you need to do. You're going to be able to build your business, build prosperity, help your community, do all those things without government telling you how you're supposed to do it. Those are the countries to run to or cities to run to or states to run to. Run to the ones that are the most free. For sure. And it's one of the mistakes that politicians and policymakers that I see sometimes make is that they're constantly looking backwards and not focusing on the next 10, 50, 25 years. But speaking of, you mentioned press a little bit earlier. And speaking of press, reputation is one of the most important things in not only business, but in life. Warren Buffett has this saying that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. How have you gone about building your brand as a VC and sustaining it? Yeah, my dad used to say, don't ever say anything that you wouldn't mind having printed in the New York Times. And now the New York Times is sort of a socialist paper, but, <laughs> but so I'm not so sure they I would even want to be printed in the New York Times. But I look and I say, well, with first with DFJ and now with Draper Associates, we are really with with DFJ, we were the the brand for the entrepreneur. We were always focused on the entrepreneur. And the LPs didn't always understand how important that was, but we were really focused on the entrepreneur. And with Draper Associates, we're, on, we're focused completely on the entrepreneur again. And plenty of examples where I supported Elizabeth Holmes to the very end to, uh, to where we do what we say and, and say what we're going to do, and then we do it. But now we realize that in venture capital, we are the we are the family office brand. We're much better for family offices because the world now wants to learn how venture capital works. And the family offices feel like, hey, we can do that ourselves. And so we're a great brand for helping them find their way. So we actually now are on both sides of the it's a dual sided market venture capital, you raise money from one end and you invest it in another. Now we're able to support both sides. We are a family office venture capitalist and we are a great supporter of entrepreneurs. Right. And on the show, one of the most important questions I ask when covering startup founders is either the problem that they're solving, the friction they're reducing in an existing industry, or the barriers that they're breaking, barriers of entry that, that they're breaking down. And through taking a part of thousands of pitch meetings that you've done, what is the, one of the most important questions that you ask or one that comes up the most frequently? I think the question I ask the very most is, why are you doing this? And I want them to be on their heels. I want them to think, wait, why am I doing this? Or, yeah, I probably shouldn't have gotten started, but now I'm kind of stuck in it. Or I'm doing it because it has to happen. My employer didn't see the light. My, these customers didn't see the light, but I am going to show them the light. And that is probably the question I ask the most. But the advice I give the most is on business modeling. Because I 
created that Rara marketing. I am focused on how do you make your customer into your sales force? How do you get people like for you, Mbit? You should be thinking, what can I do with my show so that people, my customers go and talk to all their friends about it and say, hey, you got to listen to this. You got to watch this show because this weird thing happens. happened. They had Draper on the show. He started <laughs> dancing, whatever it was. <clears throat> and, and that is the way everybody should look at their business. How do you get your customers? And in venture capital, our customers are investors and entrepreneurs. How do we get the investors to talk about how well we've done for them? And how do we get entrepreneurs to talk to other entrepreneurs about how, how well we've done with them? Gotcha. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Warren Buffett, when investing, has said to look into companies that people are ignoring or overlooking. And it's one of the strategies that he's used to, one of many strategies he's used to make a lot of money over the years. And although public investing is very different than private investing, when investing in the next big companies, how do you find the standout ones? And then how can you tell in the pitch meeting? Well, I would agree with Warren on that. Uh, it's good to look where other people aren't looking. And that's where that was why one of the reasons why I decided that I would go start Draper Associates and spin out from larger partnership with a lot of people. And that was because if you've got a large partnership, the decisions are going to approach the mean. They're going to approach the average decision. And if you're on your own, you'll make more mistakes, but you'll also potentially find those outliers that make a big impact on your returns. So I've thought about that a lot. And I do like looking for those entrepreneurs where, is it an easy thing to copy? Is it a company that is going after something just because another company has been successful in that field before? So there are a lot of things we look away from, but when we look for companies, it's usually an entrepreneur where we you look into the industries going after, and the Google search just shows three results, you know, some guy in Canada and some guy in Jamaica who are doing similar things, and nothing else. If there are, if you do a Google search and you see, 100,000 results of a whole bunch of people starting this, you know that this is going to be a cottage industry. And unless they've figured out a business model that helps them rise above the crowd, they're not going to be successful. And so we are looking for the different. And the different is usually run by somebody who has really tried to dedicate their life to it. And that is a powerful thing. You've got somebody who, who is doing things for non-economic reasons. So they don't, they're, they don't, the best entrepreneurs don't blink when they can't raise money. They just go, well, whatever. They're not going to be a part of our company. We're just going to keep going. We're a train. They can get on or not. The worst entrepreneurs are often the ones who can raise the most money, <laughs> which is often a problem. So I always tell my entrepreneurs, raise as much as you can. Just don't spend it. 
I agree. I think it's one of the problems that startup founders get trapped or encapsulated into is that they'll be so stuck on deciding to raise more money from VCs or how can they raise more money from the next round and the next round. And in doing so, they actually lose track of their customers, which is their customer base. Instead, they're always focusing on the money and how to raise more of it from VCs. But one of the most valuable companies that you backed was Tesla. And at the time when Martin Ebenhard was there, and you were really early with all of the issues that Tesla had over the years, did you keep putting money in? And then how do VCs know when to cut their losses or do you stop increasing their capital investment? That's a really difficult thing. And it's a tough decision to make when you don't know if you should be putting more money in. But when Elon came in and he said he was going to put in $10 million, we saw a great leader and a and, and some new money that kind of tipped the scale. And so we did double down. We did want to go in for more money when Elon came in. But when we started with Martin, he was a real visionary. He had an extraordinary idea for how to operate batteries for to run a car. And the way I found him was through going to all these electric car hobbyist shows and asking people who else is doing this. And they always mentioned Tesla. So I hunted him down and turned out what was beautiful about it was the parallelism of the batteries because lithium ion batteries do explode sometimes, but he figured out a way of routing around them and using them in parallel to increase the torque. And Boy, that made a big difference. And those cars are still just amazing. But I have a signature S car, definitely the best car I've ever owned. And it was pretty good because it was like number five off the line. And I guess it was eight off the line, but five off the line on the day that they launched it. And you'd think five off the line would have, you know, the bumper would fall off and the wheels would fall off and everything would fall off. It's been great. And the service Tesla's given me has been unbelievably great. And probably partly because I was an investor. <laughs> well, that could be it too, yeah. <laughs> I think everybody's gotten that kind of service and everybody's got that kind of a car who's bought a Tesla. And wow, it, it hit a trillion dollar market cap. We've yes. never had that before. We, we've never seeded a company other than Tesla that ever reached a trillion dollar market cap. So I'm excited that they've done so well. Yeah, for sure. And full disclaimer, I'm also a Tesla investor, not, not as early stage, obviously, but I've also heard that they have great customer service as well. And being able to build a car company, well, at this point, it's more than just that, but at starting to build a car company from scratch was really hard. And Elon had to be on the factory floor and it almost went bankrupt multiple times. But when you first started to back it, when Martin Ebenhard was there, why did you decide to back a, an electric car company, even though a car company hasn't started in a decade back then? Yeah. Well, there had been, there had been car companies started. They just hadn't succeeded. Right. <laughs> there was a DeLorean and there were a bunch of little car companies that didn't never amounted to anything. The, the reason I did, I got all excited about it was really because another guy gave me a, a ride in his electric car. And this is before I had met Tesla or anybody else. His name was Ian Wright. And it was Wright Motors. And Ian said, 
get in and he said, strap yourself down with a five point strap. And I thought, I'm surprised I'm using any kind of a seatbelt here because I thought everybody who was in electric cars was, you know, either a golfer or a tree hugger. And it turns out that all of a sudden I realized that everyone was going to want uh, an electric car because he took off the the car just took off like a bat and it was so fast i mean it was like zero to 16 three seconds or something like that but what was really interesting was how quickly he stopped so 60 to zero in like one second and i realized right there that something was going to change something had changed and we were looking at something that was going to be in everybody's garage. And I still believe it. I think anybody who's still buying a gas powered car is either they have a, a very, very long commute, like you know, from San Francisco to L, like 500 miles, or they just haven't discovered that they're better off with an electric car. The environment's yeah. better off with an electric car too. Right, totally. And when I first moved here into my town, there was only one electric car that I saw in like a year or so. But now they're like all over the place, mainly Teslas. You see a lot of Teslas all over the town. Very few other cars. Teslas have really taken over and they're really gaining market share. What town is that? Princeton, Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, God, great. Yeah, so they're really taking over and we see a lot more people investing in electric cars. But now to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for beginner VCs and then a takeaway for people interested in starting their own company? So beginner VCs, if you join a firm, I recommend that you see if you can put your name on three deals instead of just one. Because you, if it's one, you'll, you will live and die by that one and it's more likely you're going to die by it and, and try to build your own network. That would be my advice, but it's a long, long way to get a network that's big enough so that your judgment can be good. I would specialize at, at first as a venture capitalist. I'd say I am the decentralization guy, or I am the computational biochemistry guy, or I'm whatever, or the family girl or the something, whatever. And then the second thing I would do, I hate to do stereotypes. I probably should have said girl the first two times and got us, whatever. <laughs> then if you're an entrepreneur, I would do soul searching, a lot of soul searching. I would figure out if you are capable of building a great business, is it in your heart? And is it, are you, if you're doing it for the money, don't do it. If you're doing it for the good of the customer, that is for the right reason. And I guess I, a good thing to close on is the words of Bob Dylan, song that didn't really get very big. It says, he says, you got to serve somebody. When you go through your life, make sure you have a customer. Make sure you serve somebody and make sure you make money. Because if you're not making money, you're a part of the problem you become the homeless or you become the whatever you want to make money and with money you can then spread the good word of whatever it is you're trying to do throughout the world so you can be better that way then and then use 
viral marketing or other leveraged approaches to marketing to get your product out there. And always keep a really close eye on the customer and make sure you can always provide them a service that delights them. Well, thank you, Seamus. Thanks for having me on the show. I look forward to hearing the comments and uh, please send me a link. I agree. Well, thanks so much for making a guest appearance uh, on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And for all the listeners, you can go check out the episode description below for all the more information and feel free to drop a five-star review down below. I appreciate it.